following program is pre-recorded. Morning, Lori, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. From the West Coast today, I'm bringing you the Hillsdale Dialogue. Now, if you are a new listener in our new affiliates in Oklahoma City, Charleston, West Virginia, Philadelphia suburbs in Delaware, or our new friends in Palm Springs, California, know this. Our Hillsdale Dialogue is the last radio hour of the week. We've been doing it for eight or nine years. All 400 plus of them are collected over at iTunes under Hillsdale Dialogue. And we are right now in the middle of reviewing Shakespeare's history plays with the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn, and Dean Stephen Smith, the professor of English at Hillsdale College. And both of them have been joining us, and we pick up where we left off. You can go back at the iTunes site and listen to our last three with Stephen Smith and Larry Arn because we began the history plays. And let's go right there, Stephen Smith, and remind the audience where we were when we took a break on December 17th. Well, we were at a very dramatic moment. Uh, Richard II's body um, was brought in. A gentleman said he killed him on the orders of uh, the king. Uh, Everyone is shocked. And Henry IV says one of his best lines, um, those who need poison don't love it. And he decides that he is going to undertake a um, crusade to the Holy Land to kind of make up for the end of Richard II. And that's where we pick up at the beginning of Henry IV, Part One. Now, that is the first play of the Henriad. Now, the Henriad really confuses the Steelers fans. And the Tetrarchies, are, there are two of them, and they confuse me. So you want to set up the basic structure of what we're doing right now in the Hillsdale Dialogue? Sure. Um, we are in the second tetralogy. It's nicknamed the Henriad because um, Henry V, Hal, we're going to meet him today, he's the major figure. It begins with Richard II, then Henry IV, Part I, Henry IV, Part II, Henry V. Sounds like not the most exciting thing in the world, but man, does it get good and gripping and great. And the now, very I had to go and look up the whole tetralogy thing. Uh, Dr. Arn, when did you first learn about tetralogies? I had no idea that this existed in Shakespeare studies. Uh, I was in kindergarten. Oh, you son of a gun. (laughs) Honest to goodness. By the way, to my new audiences, I do this because it's my penance. It's a a way of avoiding purgatory. If I talk to Dr. Arn once a week, I won't have to do purgatory because the saints will smile on me and do that because Dr. Arn and I have been... Uh, throwing darts at each other. He with much more accuracy and speed for 30 years. How are you, by the way? Happy New Year, Dr. Uh, happy New Year to you, too. Yeah, <laughs> you scored early. That's, why, that's, that's like the Steelers against the Browns this week. So anyway, uh, the tetralogy, it's not only in Shakespeare, is it, Stephen Smith, as I learned and read preparing for this from your outline in my own reading. It's been used in literature for a long time. Yeah, I mean, we, we are more familiar with trilogy, right? Um, and tetralogy just means a four-part sequence. So, But, but when Tolkien started out to do Lord of the Rings, he knew he was going to write three books. Did Shakespeare know he was going to write these four plays and plan it that way, do you think? That's a big, good question, big, big discussion. Um, we don't know for sure is the short answer, but I tend to uh, give the guy credit. He had already written a four-play sequence um, back uh, earlier in his career. And so this kind of origin story um, looks like the second one to me, but we don't know for sure is the short answer. 
Now, Dr. Arn East Cheap is next on our list. We've got these beautiful outlines pre- prepared by Dean Smith. And you're the England expert. You're married to an Englishwoman, and you, you spent a lot of time in East Cheap yourself, uh, I think. Uh, what do you think of East Cheap, and which neighborhood of London most resembles it now? Uh, well, it's uh, East London. Uh, it's now greatly extended because they developed the Docklands, which so the River Thames runs from from uh, what it, its mouth. It in, it opens it it empties into the into the into the North Sea, and that's in the south east. Sorry, yeah, east of London, and then if you go up river, you eventually get to Oxford and beyond. Uh, so, so the the if you're looking at a map of England, uh, the east of London, London's a huge place, by the way. It takes up much of the southeast of England. Uh, then, when you go east, you you the richest part of London, the city of London, where the Bank of England is, and all the big financial institutions, is succeeded farther east to by by Cockneyland and by the Docklands, and so this is uh, very apt. The way he describes the pub where these people hang out and the and the uh, dissolute life they live, except it turns out it's not underneath it fully dissolute. And so, yeah, it's a it's a low part of London. It's so. Like, uh, it's like in, uh, in Plato's Republic, it begins with, I went down to the Piraeus, and that's the docks. Uh, the Piraeus is today, the port of a- Athens. And docklands are places where lots of foreigners come and go, and, and uh, it's the opposite of in, in London of Mayfair, which is in the northwest of London, and that's like really fancy. A low and illicit place where there kings and princes right. are not often seen. So why do we begin Henry IV, Part One there, Dean Smith? Well, we actually begin with, with his father. Um, but the play has a really cool kind of upstairs, downstairs structure. You, know, you have at the political level with the, with the king and the rebellion and the war. And then you have this under story as well, um, mainly in prose in East Cheek. Um, and so that's where Hal has been. He comes up for the first time at the end of Richard II. His father is exasperated. Where is the prince? And turns out he's in East Cheap. He sends a message back to his father that he has got something in mind that he's working on. And he says he's going to pluck a glove from the commonest creature he can find, emerge from East Cheap, and really kick some backside. And that's the first indication we have about this young man, this young prince, who will be kind of the starring figure the rest of the way. So he's been down there embarrassing his father, mortifying his father, yet he's clearly got a plan and he's plotting something great. In the back of everyone's mind, they know that Henry V is the big, is the big deal. They know Kenneth Branagh movie. They're, they're aware of We Band of Brothers speech. They've heard it referred to. But this cycle of four plays, Richard is succeeded by Henry IV. There are two plays named Henry IV, one, Henry IV, two, and then there's Henry V. But through them all, Hal exists, and Hal is Henry V. We just call him Hal. Uh, distinguished in this play from Hotspur, would you give us a quick plot summary of, of what's going on here? Yeah, just very briefly, um, Henry IV at the beginning brings up the whole, let's go to the Holy Land, let's make things right with the whole Richard II uh, killing. But political business breaks it off, 
um, there's tension, and then it grows into a rebellion. Uh, Hotspur and others will rebel against Henry the Fourth, and this causes the war in the play. Meanwhile, Hal is in East Cheap doing heaven knows what, um, but he will emerge from there uh, at the end to play the decisive role in the battle and bring victory to his father's side. And we are doing this because this is a study in leadership where character is king, as you wrote to me. And we have really no better tutor of leader, political leadership than Shakespeare. Exactly. I mean, to me, this is his master concern. Um, he really depicts, represents the soul in action, um, the soul, you know, desiring, deliberating, choosing, acting. And boy, does he want us to pay close attention to that. He wants us to study these leaders and how they roll. And of course, learn from them um, both uh, good things and bad things. It's his it's his key subject in my mind. Well, you know, looking at you learn how to murder your uh, <laughs> your predecessors and you learn how to take the crown before your father's dead. There's lots of stuff you learn in this that isn't particularly savory, <laughs> Dean Smith. Uh, Shakespeare's good on that, right? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things to learn in this world. And, and, and definitely, I mentioned last time, the insight from that one scholar who thinks surely some better way of doing things is possible. <laughs> you know, so you learn a lot of uh, how not to in Shakespeare. Like, but yeah, like I, I, I've been also to. listening to Norman Davies' uh, History of Europe. And Dr. Arne, these barons in the feudal era... They were little kings, and they occasionally decided they wanted to be big kings. This was not unfamiliar territory for historians. Well, that, that's uh, part of the problem. Uh, things have gotten richer. Uh, it, this, uh, what we're reading here, it's, it, these character studies that Steve describes are set among the birth of modern England. And that birth comes from two very long wars, the Hundred Years' War, which was a war between England and France, the result of which comes in the, in the Henry VI play when England is expelled from France, and the War of the Roses between these two houses that are fighting. And the reason the houses are strong is because uh, people have become loyal to their lord more than to the king. More on that after the break. Go nowhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue on 1 Henry 4 gets going. Continues after the break. It's another non-stop action-packed information blitz. Kind of makes you tingle, doesn't it? Hang on. Hugh Hewitt will be right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Dean Stephen Smith, professor of English at Hillsdale College. We are in Shakespeare, the history plays. Henry the Fourth, Part One. Uh, Doctor Arndt, by the way, is Hillsdale open for business? You know, Yale is basically locked down their students. I'm just wondering if Hillsdale's actually doing college. Well, classes start next week. And, Good. And, yeah, I mean, it, it is funny. People, we haven't agonized about this. <laughs> you know, it's not like we haven't had a meeting about whether to have college. I know it's so different from <laughs> Yale. I love it so much. You, by the way, you're going to have applications go through the roof if you haven't already. Yeah, you know, they have been. Yeah, it, uh, a remarkable. top college in America that actually does college without all the nonsense. Yeah, well, we're you know, uh, if you know, whatever you do for a living, you, you you know, you're supposed to do it 
well. Yes. Well, you can't do, you know, you you can do a lot of good with remote learning. You know, we have, what, over 2 million, I think, online students now. Uh, well, that's great, right? But if you want to do it at the top level, you have to sort of go into the fire, and that's where it's a joyous fire, but it's hot. And that means everybody's working together, and, everybody, and there's intense focus, especially toward the end of the t- term. And, you know, that's activity produces knowledge better than any activity ever to be found. That's why I've declined to teach con law for two years running. I will not do it remotely. I'm a classroom teacher. Uh, Stephen Smith, let me ask you about East Cheap and actually about Falstaff. This is our short segment. Most people have heard of Falstaff, even in Pittsburgh. Why is he here? What does he do? What's his job? Yeah, he's Shakespeare, probably Shakespeare's most famous comic creation. Um, he's a mad, a mad mountain of flesh. He's described a big guy. And he is Hal's sort of drinking buddy, older guy, even a shadowy kind of father figure. But he is essential in the play because for listeners, the way to think about East Cheap is, is, you know, you could focus on, oh, they're doing all these immoral things down there. Um, but the subtler point is what is how learning in East Cheap. And one of the biggest um, sources of education, believe it or not, is this guy, Falstaff. They're exercising their wit on each other. There's endless battles of wit, insult contests. But guess what else they do in East Cheap? They play act. They, they put on little dramas that are very funny and audiences go crazy over. Um, and you might ask yourself, what might an aspiring leader, like a Hal, what do you learn from battles of wit, from play acting, from silly dramas? He's learning a lot. He says at one point uh, to a friend down there, I've learned to drink with every tinker in his own language. So East uh, Cheap is a fascinating uh-huh. part of play, very interesting, and it puts Hal in contact with ordinary people as well. It's a little That's bit it. of a prince and a pauper line, which will be familiar to most listeners, that, that you get to go among shadow. He does it later in uh, Henry V, doesn't he? He puts on his cloak and goes among the soldiers. Yes, that's right. But here it's, it's, um, it's all part of this grand plan that he's working. Is he a criminal, though? Does he do criminal activity? Um, well, he, he engages in immoral activities. The, the biggest issue is this thing called the Gad's Hill Fest, which is actually a joke. But it does involve robbing these pilgrims from Canterbury <laughs> and then robbing Falstaff who robs them. It's hard to explain, but it's very funny. And how at the end of that will lie to the sheriff about the whereabouts of Falstaff. So for me, the closest uh, he comes to having some real trouble down there is that. Um, but he also will say he knows what he's doing and it's all part of his plan. Uh, Dr. Arn, I've never had a Falstaff in my life, in my education, but I want to know if you did. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was the president of a fraternity full of Division One football players. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, answered. Asked and I had answered. like 90 of them. But, uh, yeah, no, they were good guys, but they were, you know... We were young. <laughs> <laughs> we have fraternities at Hillsdale, too. Running with rogues is not a bad thing. Well, if you know, I mean, that's a, that's a serious point. I mean, first of all, there's an important political point here. Even in a monarchy, and Britain was never an absolute monarchy in the way of France, but it was a very powerful king. 
Uh, you need to know what the people think. This is what Henry is learning them, right? Yeah. And a lot of these monarchs come to Greece because they haven't learned that. Yeah, hold on to that thought, because I'm going to bring up the Hillsdale Cafeteria after this. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue underway. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Stop action-packed information. Blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Stephen Smith, dean of Hillsdale College, and English professor there. When I am invited to Hillsdale, infrequently though it might be, it is always in the dead of winter. The students are there. Uh, and it's always, we go to the cafeteria for lunch, and Larry Arn plucks down without warning his tray and his guest amidst a bunch of students who are uh, not unhappy, but they're also alarmed. Uh, and and he goes among the students. I gather to learn what they are thinking. Yeah, well, you gotta, you know, I. It's probably the single most important thing that I have done here is I learned a lot of things that that were thought about the students were not true, and the reason is the people in charge of that stuff at the time didn't spend much time with them, and and. You know, they would tell me one thing, and I would go and talk to the students, and I would hear another thing. And that was disturbing to me. And there was, uh, Hillsdale, I don't know, Steve can tell me, but uh, Hillsdale College is a happy place and a successful place. It's very hard to get in here. Hardly anybody leaves. Uh, they submit themselves to four years of torture and giggle all the way through it. And And that's what a college is supposed to be like. But... You need to know if it's actually like that. And uh, so, yeah. And that was so, my way of saying you had to have a plan. You began your plan with your students and your faculty. So what is Hal's plan in 1 Henry 4, where he's not the king? We don't even know when he's going to be the king. So what's his plan, Stephen Smith? Well, remember, he had hinted back at the end of Richard II that he was going to come out of East Cheap and do some great things. But in the beginning of this play, he actually says in a soliloquy that he is doing everything deliberately. He says, I know you all about the East Cheapers. And he says, for a while, I'm going to uphold this act. But he goes on to say what he's really intending to do is to rise out of East Cheap like the sun and overwhelm men's eyes with wonder at his glory. He also says he's staging his own reformation. And he, and he says one of the reasons he's doing so, because nothing pleases people like uh, nothing pleases people like stories. Um, and they love stories like, oh, the guy was down in East Cheap. He was running with the wrong crowd. He got his act together. He emerged. And, man, he became King Henry V. The, the, the term is rare accident that you sent me. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting way of framing the story arc that he is trying to live through. A rare accident. The come from behind winner, right? Yeah, and, he, and he's doing it quite deliberately. That's the thing. And so uh, it's both impressive. If you want to remember that throughout the whole rest of the Henry ad, that he has a plan and he is executing it. Now th think of the alternative that he gives up, too. He's the son of the king. And that means 
he could spend all his time at court playing power games with the powerful. And by the way, much of these, uh, much of the dialogue in these plays is that kind of thing, right? People who want to be king, maneuvering, you know, eventually breaking out and killing each other. And what he does is he goes out and gets drunk with a bunch of ordinary folk. And that's a, that's a kind of mastery that's uh, un, almost unbelievable and to anticipate. He doesn't, he wins the great battle, which we'll do in the next, in the next play, but he doesn't get to live very long, right? And, and Politics the, is full of tragedy. And the short life of Henry V is one of them. The, you, have, you have studied long and hard Lincoln and Churchill, and they both have episodes, long periods of their life, where they mix with people who are below either their intellect or their class. And, and they do so diligently. Lincoln is a lawyer, Churchill is a soldier. One, one of my uh, favorite things is in the Churchill archive, there's, Churchill was in the Army for a long time. And he, he loved ordinary people. He loved to go out among them. One of the most popular things he did was go visit the bombing. But uh, his orderly in India wrote him a letter after he became the greatest man in the world. And he says in the letter, I can remember when I used to put the Udakalam water on you, spelled O-O-D-A-K-A-L-U-M. And we wonder, what in the world is that? And we searched and searched, and of course it's a curse because Martin Gilbert often did this. I would look and look and look, and then <laughs> I, I, I walked in and he looked at me and he said, "Eau de Cologne." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that! I'm glad you that you pay your dues for every research assistant and editorial assistant out there. You're not alone. Uh, so, okay, let's move on. To Hotspur, because I don't want a short shrift Hotspur. I'm really interested in Hotspur, Stephen Smith. Tell us about him. Harry Percy. He, he, can, he almost steals the show. Yep. Uh, my students get such a kick out of him. Uh, he is fiery, he's feisty. Um, he's the, the guy who understands himself as the principled one, the real lover of honor, the truthful one. And boy, he does not like Henry IV, and he will be... Uh, one of the key members of that rebellion against him. Now, the funny thing, though, is that he, for all of his fire and, uh, and the attractiveness of Hotspur, which everyone reckon, recognizes, and his fierceness as a warrior, um, he has some liabilities. He, so he hates politics. He hates poetry. Um, so he's really a powerful figure, but he's also very immature. And the critiques that are leveled at him are kind of obvious, but they're worth noting. You know, he has no temperance. Um, he has a hard time reasoning well. He doesn't listen to counsel. He's really imprudent, and that threatens to kind of make his courage just foolishness. You, course, you stressed in your notes, he doesn't like poetry. Now, why does that matter to you so much? <laughs> Great question. Well, it's because it matters to Shakespeare. I mean, look at how much Hal benefits from poetry, for crying out loud. So you have this Hotspur, this other, you know, opposite, the other Harry in the play. And really, Hal's only real rival, I think. And he thinks poetry is just skimble scamble stuff. He says he'd rather listen to a cat meow than poetry. <laughs> he, can't, he can't stand it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't like it. Um, and, and I think behind this all is, is the thought from Shakespeare that that's really too bad because he would benefit so much from it. 
Um, and that, that comes back to Shakespeare as one of his core convictions, I think, that poetry educates in a particularly good, beneficial, and useful way uh, those who study it. And so Hal is a student of history and poetry, it turns out. One, one of the uh, wittiest things that Hotspur says, one of the wittiest things in Shakespeare, it's a catchphrase between me and graduate students, friends of mine, is that Glenn Dower in this play says, I can call spirits from the vasty deep. And Hotspur replies, why, so can I, or so can any man, but will they come when you do call for them? In other words, and that's funny and really good, but also he's not looking for spirits, yep. Hotspur. Nope. No, yeah. I, I I just think it's part of the character study here, and that that he detests it. But why do you call him a splendid fellow? Uh, he's a serious rival, but he's obviously flawed if he doesn't love uh, well, history and literature and politics. Okay, you could critique Hotspur very readily. You could you could conclude he's a fool. He gets himself killed. Um, I do think it's a suggestion in the play that England is less. It's it's not. It loses something with his death. And one of the things that he brings to the play is that truthfulness. Um, he's the one who says to the other men, you know, you guys helped Henry the Fourth. You were his ladder. You were his base second means. And now you wear the blot of murderous subordination. You know, he's, he, he's the one who, who says things like that. And well, yeah. the whole truth tellers <laughs> who fashion themselves truth tellers can be very tiresome and very bombastic and very moralistic. And they run out of road in a hurry. Well, that's that's the thing. He has that as a strength, but then with the weakness of judgment and prudence, there's a hilarious scene where he reads a letter. It's one of my favorite scenes. You know, Dr. Arn mentioned his... I love when Hotspur reads this letter. It's from a friend who's warning him that he has gotten himself in an imprudent position. She, Stop! And he reads it, and he's like, this guy is a complete idiot. He reads the letter. And at the end of it, he wants to brain the guy with his lady's fan. Like, he just but the guy is actually giving him prudent advice and warning him. So Hotspur just is a funny combination of truthfulness, honor, and fire on the one hand, and then this intemperate, imprudent foolishness on the other. Very immature. Um, but boys, blended and with a lot of potential. Even the joke you mentioned, that shows that he actually has an aptitude, I think, for, for poetry and for wit. Um, it just needs more formation, better education. I'm trying to come up with the word that I, I can't recall, but it, rigid and scornful of people who do not share their views. That is not prudent. We see a lot of that in Washington, D.C. today. People who are just absolutely convicted of their own right and unaware of dissent. And uh, I, I mean, among people generally on the right side of things, we just see a lot of it. And I'm thought of the Hotspurs I was preparing for this. It just reminded me of some very specific people. It, it, doesn't it also mean, by the way, that uh, like in the tragedies of these plays, and remember that this is the successful formation of England that issues in the reign of Elizabeth I, the first great peak in British history in which Shakespeare lives. But the tragedy is too many of these people are too interested in politics. Politics is extremely important, right? But if you think it's the highest thing, the next thing you'll turn into Adolf Hitler. And, you know, you'll be, you know, we'll get to Richard III and you'll be killing your cousins 
and your and your brother and everybody else see yeah. and so in other words if you if you commune with the most elevate elevated things that's how you learn what politics is for that's why churchill and lincoln were great people including great students of william shakespeare you know the, the word i was looking for is he's hectoring and and a scold that's what i don't like about him uh, is that people who are who won't engage or give anything to the other side any point to the other side their stridency makes them uh very, very difficult to deal with. We'll be right back. The Hillsdale Dialogue will continue all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale or over at iTunes. Just Google Hillsdale Dialogues and iTunes, and you can start at the beginning, and you have 450 episodes to go through. Don't go anywhere, America. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dean Stephen Smith is leading us along with Professor of English, Dean Stephen Smith of Hillsdale and the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn, through one Henry four, Henry four, part one. And uh, Stephen, we got to go over a lot of ground in seven minutes. So get us there. Take us home because we've been ignoring sort of Hal and the king. There's a relationship here and it it comes to a, a conclusion and a showdown. Yeah, as the war uh, heats up, or the rebellion heats up, and it's going to be a big battle, um, Shakespeare includes a great scene between Henry IV and Howe. And, of course, it's a father-son moment, and his father just really goes after him for the mortifying behavior. And Howe um, promises, he vows, that he's done with East Chief at that point. The line is, I shall hereafter, my thrice gracious Lord, be more myself. And then he says he's going to now not only put East Cheap behind him, but fight. Um, he says, I will redeem all of this on Hotspur's head. I'm going to call this guy to so strict an account. He shall render every glory up, or I will tear the reckoning from his heart. And this is a voice we haven't heard before in the play. And his father, when he hears this, basically turns to the other guys and says, get that boy, get that boy an army. And, and so Hal is really emerging as, whoa, this guy's got a little bit more to him than he's cheap. And uh, I, love, I love when my students say, bam, you know, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, but Henry, uh, Hal, that is, really gives a mic drop speech. And his father says, okay, you get an army now. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do the war. And what happens and to Falstaff when war comes? Well, he, you know, he just does his thing and he... Um, will um, basically badly lead and end up kind of cowardly, apparently dead. And then he rallies at the end and takes credit for the death of Hotspur of all things. <laughs> now there's a duel. There's a duel. Yeah. we got to go over the duel. Yes. So at the end, there's all sorts of mayhem, right? Highlights include Hal uh, rescuing his father. And then another highlight involves... Um, a very important moment where Hal, Henry IV, tells another lord, hey, lead him away and get him some help. And Hal basically turns to the guy and says, you don't lead me. That that theme of leadership, right? I'm Henry V is kind of what he's saying. I'm the king. So Hal is distinguishing himself. He's rescuing his father. But it all comes down to the fight with Hotspur at the end. And it is a wonderful moment. And 
Hal basically tells Hotspur one-on-one, just the two of them there, meeting each other at last, you can't think to share glory any longer with me. Even he goes so far as to say, England can't endure a double reign of the two of us. It's basically time for you to talk. There's not enough room in this town for both of us, right? Basically, yeah. But that's a really rich moment. I've chewed on it, you know, wondered about it over the years. England can't endure a double reign of Howe and Hotspur. And now Hotspur, one of his last, you know, retorts is, and I can't endure your vanities, let's fight. (laughs) Uh, So he he accuses Howe of of vanity there, and then he goes down. Well, you know, that's an interesting, can any regime endure two great men at the same time? Well, I said Dr. Arn. I mean, two Churchills is hard to imagine occurring at the same time, or two Lincolns, but it, it would be difficult. Well, you know, I, I, that's a that's a hard. First of all, people like that are really rare. You know, people are, people. I, I'm often asked the question, "Who's the next Churchill?" And I always say, you know, it's been about a hundred years. We're getting due, but you can never know when or who. And and that means that there were some great people around Abe Lincoln and some great people around Winston Churchill. And they're you know, I mean, if we knew them today. We would think of them as titans, but and and we don't. You can't rule out that they would have been as good, but they weren't, and they didn't get the chance. And you know, partly that's fate, and partly the, the way they calculated their lives. You know, I mean, the, Henry the the fifth is such a serious man, right? He just does everything wrong. He he doesn't grow up the way he should. He doesn't hang around the king and keep his favor. He he knows that there's all these contestants for the throne and that he might not get to succeed. He'll have to fight to succeed, right? And he goes and prepares himself in this odd way. He's a very remarkable man, and such people are rare. Where are we going to go next week, Stephen Smith? Because what Dr. Arn just said, there are a lot of contenders for the crown. We have one minute. Well, you know, it's not a it's not a done deal because Henry the Fourth took it from Richard the Second, and it's not a given that Henry the Fifth will get it from Henry the Fourth. Yeah, there's always going to be a scrum over that crown, um, and so at the end, the play ends with execution for some, mercy for others. And then when we begin Henry the Fourth, Part Two, we're going to have another rebellion on our hands. And then Henry the Fourth will eventually sicken and die, and Hal will take the take the crown. Um, so the best kind of play is uh, is different. One thing I would ask: if you have any interest in this play, boy, Henry the Fourth, Part One, good as Shakespeare gets. Don't go anywhere, America. I, I, we didn't quite hear that, Stephen Smith, but we'll cover it when we come back. Don't go anywhere. Uh, next week, uh, Henry IV, Part 2 on the Hughes Show, Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for Imprimus. Go apply if you're a student. But you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.